five hours to dawn and I gotta be in a goddamn glass box with the king of sticks. And you know, you know, you're so fucking clean and righteous, man. You said, I, I, I got demons clawing at my ass. The streets I was selling dope, I was bad as any of those homeboys. Fucking kill... Welcome to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. But today, with Series 2 well and truly in the rearview mirror, we're heading outside of the walls of the Oswald Maximum Security Penitentiary as we embark on Outside Oz number 3. Before we get to that, though, a huge thank you to everyone who has listened to the show throughout the course of the second series. Series 2 did some great numbers, and it was amazing to get cast and crew on board with the show as well. And thank you to everyone who did just that. As always, you can go back and listen to all previous episodes of the podcast covering the entire Series 1 and 2 of Oz by heading on over to iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, CastBox, Overcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. But as I promised, we're going to do something a little different on this episode as I take a look back at the debut episode of the new show from Oz producer Tom Fontana as we look back at Series 1, Episode 1 of City on a Hill, The Night Flynn Sent the Cops on the Ice. Written by Chuck McLean in his TV writing debut, along with J.M. Holmes and Emily Ragsdale, the episode piloted in May 2018 and was picked up by Showtime for a 12-episode series. Based on an idea by McLean and Hollywood actor and former Batman Ben Affleck, the episode was produced by Tom Fontana as well as Chuck McLean and Ben Affleck, along with additional production by Matt Damon, Irene Burns, who also worked on Oz in the show's 5th and 6th series, Sarah Connors, Michael Cuesta, James Mangold, Aaron Selaquini, Jennifer Todd, Jorge Zamancona, and the show's leading actor, Kevin Bacon. The episode was directed by Michael Cuesta, who in the past has directed episodes of Dexter and Homeland, both airing on Showtime, as well as directing five episodes of HBO's Six Feet Under. Holding an 8.0 on IMDb, the episode debuted online on June 7th, 2019, and on Showtime a week later on June 16th. So with all that out of the way, let's get to it! I got no love lost for the Boston Police Department. Here comes trouble. But there was a time when I would never have to explain myself. <sighs> How's your night? Awful. What was so bad about work? This affirmative action hire. Asking jail time for cops. Is there a misunderstanding here? No, 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 I understand perfectly. I want to rip out the machinery in this bullshit city. What the fuck do you need me for? I don't want this investigation taken from me. Then we do it my way. This shit that you pull, it don't just affect you anymore. I'm sorry. You didn't promise him anything, did you? They don't want me to prosecute. So why didn't you just do what they asked? Because I'm not their fucking boy. I want to go into Charlestown and fuck that place up. And fuck anyone who gets in my way. This means you're learning. Kick off, and we have a lovely rendition of the Bee Gees' 1967 hit Massachusetts. There have been a bunch of cover versions of the song recorded over the years, but this version is performed by Dylan Gardner and taken from the To Love the Bee Gees tribute album, released in 2015. We also have some reading to do at the start, as we're told that in October 1989, a white man, Charles Stewart, killed his wife and wounded himself and claimed that the killer was in fact black and that the Boston Police Department used intimidation and coercion tactics, eventually charging a black man for the crime. While this doesn't form the basis of the episode itself, it's referenced a lot early on, and is in fact a true story. According to Charles Stewart's statement given to the police, on the night of October 23rd, 1989, he and his wife Carol, who was pregnant with their first child, were driving through the Boston suburb of Roxbury when a black male, who Charles claimed had a raspy voice, forced his way into the couple's car when they stopped at a red light, and forced Stewart to drive to nearby Mission Hill, where it is claimed that the man then robbed the couple before shooting Charles in the stomach and Carol in the head. Stewart then drove away and called the police on his car phone. Coincidentally, a film crew from the CBS reality show Rescue 911 was riding with the Boston Emergency Medical Services on the night of the crime, and film footage of the couple being removed from the car and Carol being loaded into an ambulance. Footage of Charles struggling to speak to ambulance personnel also exists, as well as of him being rushed to the emergency room. 
Carol passed away in the early hours of October 24th, however doctors performed an emergency caesarean on the couple's baby, Christopher, who was born two months premature. Christopher was baptised in the intensive care unit of the hospital and Carol's funeral was held four days later. On November 10th, Christopher passed away having suffered trauma and oxygen deprivation during the shooting. A private funeral was held for Christopher on November 20th and he was buried with Carol. Charles remained hospitalised for six weeks while an investigation was launched into the alleged crime, with the Washington Post at the time describing the city of Boston as being inexhaustible as police tried to track down the assailant. Charles required two operations whilst in hospital, and the surgeon who carried these out even ruled out the possibility of Charles' wound being self-inflicted. Police eventually arrested a young man by the name of Willie Bennett, who fit the description given by Charles in his statement, and on December 28th, Charles identified Bennett in a police lineup. The Boston Globe reported that a cheque for $480,000 was issued to Charles as part of a life insurance policy on Carol, although no cheque was ever found. However, the TV show Cold Blood confirmed that Charles had received a $100,000 life insurance cheque, which Charles cashed soon after being discharged from the hospital, and that he also bought a new Nissan Maxima, paying $16,000 in cash. The case against Willie Bennett abruptly collapsed on January 3rd, 1990, when Charles' brother Matthew, as it mentions here in the opening text, confessed that Charles was in fact Carol's killer, admitting that he had driven to meet his brother that night to commit what he had been told was an insurance fraud. Matthew admitted that he found Carol had been shot and that Charles had shot himself to make it look like a carjacking. Matthew took the murder weapon, along with a bag of valuables, and threw them off the Pine River Bridge in Revere. Some of these items, including the gun, were found at a later date. Possible motives for the killing include Charles being upset at the prospect of starting a family being a financial burden, and that he had started a new relationship with a work colleague. On January 4th, 1990, hours after his brother confessed to police, Charles met with his lawyer. Shortly afterwards, Charles' car was found abandoned on the Tobin Bridge in Chelsea. A note was found describing how Charles had been beaten by the new accusations, and that he was sapped of his strength. His body was discovered the following day in the Mystic River. The following year, Matthew Stewart was indicted for obstruction of justice and insurance fraud for his role in the crime, while an associate, John McMahon, was indicted as an accessory to murder. Matthew pleaded guilty in 1992 and was sentenced to two to five years in prison. Matthew was paroled in 1997 but was later re-arrested for cocaine trafficking. Matthew Stewart was found dead at the Heading Home Shelter in Cambridge on September 3rd, 2011, dying from an apparent drug overdose. Due to the original allegations from Charles and the testimony from his brother Matthew, racial tensions were high in Boston for a time, or as it says here, all hell broke loose. And this of course occurred two years before the Romney King incident and the LA riots of 1992, which I talked about previously on the podcast, and eight years before the Rampart scandal, but that's a whole other topic of discussion. So, a lot covered there, and we haven't even had the opening scene start, but as I say, it does play into the opening scene, where we are attending a police funeral where Jackie Raw is saying that these motherfuckers weren't doing anything that the rest of us weren't doing, as he takes a swig from his hip flask, and he's talking with his colleague Salvi about the Stewart case. He says that if he'd been told by someone that a black man had done the crime, then he would have believed them, and asks if Salvi would shit in a bag for the rest of his life over killing his wife. And both men say that they love their wives, Jackie also saying that he's a big fan of keeping things simple. He admits that he's not the biggest fan of the police department, but that the St. Clair Commission, set up in 1992 to investigate alleged corruption within the Boston Police Department and chaired by James D. St. Clair, the former legal counsel for Richard Nixon during the Watergate scandal, have leaked that they'll be looking for jail time for cops who break the law. There'll be some more Nixon chat later on, but for now, Jackie and Salvi head into the funeral, and Jackie greets the widow, and even describes her husband as being like Jack Kennedy. Cut to outside with Jackie claiming he's got a grassy knoll theory about the night that Boston went to shit, and he seems to be pretty hammered by this point. You know, I've got this grassy knoll theory about the night that this whole fucking city went to shit. It was the time <laughs> that Mayor Flynn sent the cops on the ice. You remember that? Bruins, Canadians, a fucking fight went all the way up in the stands. What used to make this city great was that it was run by bad men who understood they were bad. And then some stupid fuck goes on the TV and tells everybody, you can't act like this anymore. Not even in a Bruins game. But now, can't even call a guy a faggot. He deserves it. I don't, it's, I. So what you're saying is you're upset because this is a civil place to live now. 
What the fuck we've been working for the last 20 years? Well, I always just thought the FBI wanted to be the baddest motherfucker around. Look, I'm only gonna say this once, because you're my friend. Take it how you will. You're fucking your life up. What are you talking about? This shit you're talking about. What we used to get away with. Times are changing. It's not 1983 anymore. You gotta knock it off, pal. What's the matter with you? Look at me. I love my job. Now my kids can't stand me. I got nothing. Same thing's gonna happen to you, Jackie. Would your wife finally smarten up and leave you? Is that what this is all about? You stupid fuck. You're never gonna learn. <laughs> so Jackie getting put in his place by Salvi, who wants to change with the times, while Jackie is stuck in the past. Jackie then rips off some guys that he promised $50 to to pad out the attendance at the funeral, only giving them $20 each, saying that due to the state they're in, tax is a bitch. Massachusetts at one time was notorious for its high tax rates. However, in more recent times, those rates have lowered and come in line with other states. Jackie Rohr, of course, played here by Kevin Bacon, who I mentioned at the start is also an executive producer on this episode. I won't go completely into Kevin Bacon's career here like I would do normally. He's a big star, and I'm sure we're all aware of his main roles. Good to see him back acting in something other than crappy E adverts on TV here in the UK for a change. EE customers, we've gone all out to build you the network that can do iPhone 10 justice. Time to go all out on the UK's number one network. Tom, new Super Retina screen before G in more places, going all out? You betcha! Claire, iPhone 10's new camera with the fastest network, going all out? Instagramming like a ninja, Kev. Are you going all out on Face ID? We're just going out, out. Both. You coming? EE, you got this. iPhone 10 on the UK's number one network. Cut to a coffee shop where DeCourcy Ward, played by Aldis Hodge, is talking to Hank Singer, played by Jerry Shea, and I hope that I've pronounced that correctly. They're also talking about the St. Clair Commission, Ward citing a report in the Boston Globe saying, now who could have done that? So obviously Ward is on the commission and he's very pleased with what's been written about them. They go to leave with their coffees, but Ward bumps into a uniformed police officer who doesn't apologise. But he was clearly in the wrong, as it wasn't as if it happened in the act of Ward turning around. So you get a feeling of the raised tensions here. Ward shakes himself dry and approaches the officer, and it looks like there's going to be a confrontation. However, Ward pays for the drinks of the officer and his partner and says, thank you for your service, as he leaves. Hank jokingly tells Ward to take it easy, as Ward asks who learns that way, as we cut to the opening credits. The title City on a Hill is derived from the phrase City Upon a Hill, taken from the salt and light parable used in Jesus' Sermon on the Mound. These days the term is used in US politics to refer to the US as being a beacon of hope to the wider world. As for the show's creators, Chuck McLean is a Boston native, while Ben Affleck was born in Berkeley, California, but moved to Massachusetts at the age of three, first living in Falmouth before moving to Cambridge, birthplace of fellow producer Matt Damon. The show has an okay theme tune, written by Kevin Kinner, although like with anything with Boston as a main setting, you do get beaten over the head with Irish melodies and folk instruments. It's not the worst thing I've ever heard, but as soon as you know it's for a show set in Boston, you know what you're going to get. Boston is well known for its Irish heritage and population, but sometimes I feel like shows and movies are quite heavy-handed illustrating that on screen. Kinner has an extensive resume as a composer, getting his start on George Carlin's Playing With Your Head TV special back in 1986, and has worked on shows such as Walker Texas Ranger, Stargate SG-1, Star Trek Enterprise, CSI Miami, and Star Wars The Clone Wars. So the main episode kicks off with Naughty by Nature's OPP, as we see J.R. Minogue, played by Kevin Chapman, leading his crew of officers into a bust. The two perps, a pair of slacker stoner types, are inside watching Ren and Stimpy on a TV that looks far too modern to have been from the early 90s. The long-haired lad, Clay Roach, is played by Rory Culkin, who is the younger brother of Macaulay Culkin. I mean, you can tell just by looking at him, they're the spitting image of each other. Not seen him in a massive amount of stuff through his career, but I did really enjoy him in the movie Lords of Chaos that was out earlier this year about the mid-90s Norwegian black metal scene. Seriously, go check that out. It's an interesting piece of work, as things about black metal do tend to be. The cops burst through the door, but Minogue senses there is something amiss as he says these aren't the guys, as one of the stoners pulls out a gun from beneath a couch cushion and goes to shoot. Clear pushes the gun out of the way, but a cop still takes a bullet in the shin as the gunman jumps out of a window and escapes over a fence. 
Minogue starts asking the shot cop, Stevie, to show him the warrant that they have. Minogue looks over at the door, number 127, and asks Stevie what it says, Stevie reckoning that it says 217, and asks how the fuck did that happen. Minogue with a great line, and sod it, I'm gonna try the accent here. Your mother smoked too many cools when she was pregnant with you, you dyslexic motherfucker. Now, I've either nailed that accent, or it's nowhere near, and I apologise if it's the latter. Clay is hiding behind the couch and says that he'll come out if they show him the warrant, but Minogue tells him, here's your warrant right here, and puts the boots to Clay's face. Great little scene to open up the show, and it goes a long way to showing the different sides of law enforcement in the city, showing the difference between the police operating at ground level compared to Jackie working cases at federal level with the FBI, and Ward fighting his battles in the courtroom. Speaking of which, we cut to Ward chasing down the chief, asking why his case got thrown out of court. The chief tells him that with a cop getting shot, it's as close to a slam conviction that he could have hoped for. Ward tries to explain that there is a reputation to a black lawyer working gun cases, but the chief tells him that he's overthinking things, and that if he gets this conviction, it'll make things easier between him and the police department. Cut to a man in a flat cap, or what I believe might be referred to as a paddy cap in that part of the world, heading into a bar near the beach, which by looking at Google Maps looks like it might be down by Quincy Bay. The barman turns off the lights and tells everyone to head out and that it's closing time, which considering that it seems to be the middle of the day is obviously bullshit. Flatcat pulls out a scratch card from his jacket, but this time he's not a winner, and then goes over and locks the door of the bar. So Flatcap here is Frankie Ryan, played by Jonathan Tucker. He's another new face to me looking at his filmography, however there is a somewhat loose Oz connection with him, as in 1996, at the age of 14, he appeared in the Barry Levinson-directed Sleepers, which as I've mentioned previously also featured Terry Kinney and Pat McNamara. Kevin Bacon also starred in Sleepers, in fact I think he had top billing. Some other men come to the bar and they, along with Frankie, are shown some big-ass guns, including an M16 and an AK-47. Back at the station, Jackie goes to talk with Clay, asking what he was doing in Bromley Heath, and we find out that Clay is an informant for Jackie, which explains why he was pushing the gun out of the way earlier. Clay tries to defend himself, saying that it was the cop's fault for kicking the wrong door, but Jackie tells him, yeah, well, you shouldn't have been there anyway. Clay tells him that he has a lead that goes right to Prince Street, but if he wants to know more about that, he'll have to bail him out. Jackie doesn't seem too enthusiastic at that, but says that he'll figure something out. He heads outside and runs into a counsellor and asks about the Bromley Heath case. He's told that it's been given to Ward, who is described as a new guy, and that Jackie is going to love him because he's an affirmative action hire, and he's told that Ward was on the St. Clair Commission, which Jackie seems thrilled about. So little bits of backstory being drip-fed about Ward being new to his current position, but that he isn't a complete newbie due to having a position on something as high profile as the St. Clair. We go to the docks where Frankie and the other goons are prepping for whatever they're planning to carry out, and we see Frankie changing some number plates on a car. We then cut to a money truck out and about on its rounds as Frankie pops on a hockey mask for a disguise and blocks the truck's path with the car as the rest of the goon squad advance on the truck. One of the drivers gets whacked in the face as we cut to black to end Act 1. Act 2 gets underway with Jackie heading into a courtroom, and as he enters the building, everyone is giving him friendly little barbs like, here comes trouble, and he jokes with a woman about when she's going to leave her husband. It's clear that Jackie has quite the reputation. Gotta say as well, that is quite the coat that Jackie is wearing. So we get the first interaction between Jackie and Ward in the courtroom, and Jackie is explaining to Ward about Clay being an informant, and that he needs him as he is currently working an important case. Ward doesn't seem to want to play ball, and asks why Jackie is asking for Clay to be let off, and why he has to be the one to do it, asking if Jackie thinks that he can just walk in and think the new guy's stupid. Ward explains that he spent five years with the US Attorney and saw similar deals struck, and to take it to someone else. Jackie says, excuse me Clarence Thomas, I'm sorry I gave you the benefit of the doubt. Clarence Thomas is an associate judge of the Supreme Court, a position that he has held since October 23rd, 1991, making him the longest-serving judge of the court. Jackie tells Ward that next time he won't ask. Ward asks, is that a threat? Jackie saying, no, it's a fuck you. So this setting up of an odd couple pairing isn't exactly groundbreaking, but it sets up both men well while also leaving questions about how corrupt Jackie truly is. Is he a Ben Copper, or is he just a bit of a maverick, doing whatever it takes to get the job done? 
back with a money truck making its way across town with Frankie driving the car behind, and the goons have three hostages in the back of the van. One of the hostages rushes a goon and a fight breaks out, leading to one of the masks coming off and the charging hostage taking a gunshot in the face. The driver tries to get things under control, but in doing so ends up swerving all over the road, eventually pulling off through some nearby trees. One of the goons is shouting, He saw my fucking face! as Frankie grabs a gun, puts his mask back on, and heads to the truck. They try to figure out what they're going to do, as the hostages promise that they won't say anything, one of them even saying that he knows how these things work because he grew up in a rough neighbourhood. Another hostage tries to negotiate with them, saying that if they take some money and if the goons get caught, they can say that it was an inside job. Frankie heads outside to consider his options before heading back into the truck. He gives one of the hostages a cigarette before pulling off his own mask, and then shoots both of the remaining hostages. I thought this was another good scene, which again leaves you asking questions, particularly what level of crime are Frankie and the others at? Are they petty criminals who have tried to expand and ended up getting in over their heads? Or are they career criminals and this is the first time that something has gone wrong for them, and they're having to deviate from the plan? Like I say, really well done. Cut to Jackie having sex with a Chinese woman in the back of a takeaway, which is about as classy as it sounds. As he heads out, the mother of the woman's giving him some shit, and he stumbles past some work colleagues before heading home. He creeps into his house, but hears a noise coming from the bathroom. He opens the door to find his daughter vomiting into the toilet, so it looks like he's not the only one who's had a wild night. He asks if she wants some sausage and peppers that he has left over from dinner, and tells her to be thankful that he found her and not her mother. So we're seeing both sides of Jackie in very short spaces of time here. He isn't against banging some broad on the side and taking some drugs, but he's also understanding of what his teenage daughter has been up to as he's been there and done that, and clearly still is. Sausage and peppers doesn't sound like much of a meal on its own though, I hope he was having that in some sort of sandwich. We see the goons drilling holes into some metal barrels as they continue to try and figure out what they're gonna do. One of them says that he doesn't know if he can look his wife in the eye and tell her what happened, and Frankie asks him, why, you didn't do nothing? And we see them head down to the river and push three barrels into the water, presumably containing the three hostages' bodies, the holes being drilled to allow water to enter and sink the barrel. Next day, we're at home with Ward as he's looking over some paperwork, and we meet his girlfriend Siobhan, played by Lauren E. Banks, who asks what he's up to. She makes reference to how life doesn't have to be this hard, and that the firm would love to have him and he mentions about having to watch rich people eat lobster as they have a disagreement about going to some sort of dinner in the week. Siobhan saying, you'll take what I give you and be glad to eat it. She gives him a couple of kisses and makes her way over to the bedroom as the penny drops with old Ward and he joins her. Lots of quick little scenes scattered throughout this episode to introduce all the main characters and the relationship to others. Unlike what we saw when we began with Oz, where you got a number of different characters and their relationships with others stretched out over the course of the first series. This also serves to give us a little more on Ward, showing that he's in a stable relationship as well as being a smart, driven man, who has a number of options in which his career can go, depending on what choices he makes. Cut to Jackie's house, where his wife Jenny, played by Jill Hennessy, has a candle being held to her ear by her mother as some kind of old wives' remedy for Jenny's ear problem. You don't see enough old wife remedies on TV anymore. She asks Jackie how his night was, and he says that he had a rough one. Jenny sarcastically asks why Jackie looks so handsome this morning, and also mentions about how their daughter couldn't get out of bed either, but Jackie plays that off as feminine issues. Jenny leaves saying that she hopes that Jackie feels better, but it's clear to see that they're having issues of their own and that there's a bit of an atmosphere. I know she was joking about Jackie looking handsome, but considering the amount of facelifts that Kevin Bacon has allegedly had over the years, He's not looking too bad for his age. Jackie heads to work and meets up with the chief, and as we've had before, some slightly racist language used here, so you've been warned. Hey. Where the fuck do you find this kid, Ward? U.S. attorneys working white collar, junk bonds, savings loan, that sort of thing. Why? What is a guy like that doing working at the fucking Suffolk DA's office? Well, he's got a notion he's gonna be the next mayor of Boston. Well, then, how's he figure that? Got money? No, he's just a Brownsville porch monkey, but his wife's got money. Hmm. She good looking too? Honestly, how much trouble are you about to cause me today? So while Ward may be a driven individual, we find that he does come from a well-off background, which will no doubt have helped him along the way, much to the chagrin of some on the force. The chief heads into Ward's office and asks him about Clay, and Ward seems confident that Clay will be heading to jail by the end of the week. The chief's all, 
yeah, about that, as he asks Ward to drop the case, which as you can imagine, Ward is definitely willing to do. The Chief says that it will be in Ward's best interest to drop the case, and Ward tells him if that is the case, then to order him to do it. But the Chief tells him there are two ways to do this job. You could have it for the rest of your life, watching his kids grow up away from the shit they see every day, and then starts to talk about Ward being an idealist as Ward cuts him off, saying that he isn't having this conversation. We see in the background that Ward has a picture of Abraham Lincoln on his wall. Lincoln, of course, the 16th President of the United States, serving from March 1861 to April 1865, and led the country through the American Civil War and helped to abolish slavery. He was also often referred to as Honest Abe, the story being that as a young man working as a store clerk, Lincoln once gave a customer the incorrect change, after which he walked a long distance to give the person the correct amount. There is another picture on Ward's wall, however I couldn't work out who it was as the chief got in the way a little bit and the only clear shot of it was a quick one. It could have been George Washington, but I'm not too sure. Cut to nighttime, where Ward is attending a crime scene where he meets up with Hank, who says that this is their 99th murder for the year. Ward takes him aside and asks that, in his experience, is it rare for the FBI to interfere in felony cases? Hank tells him that it's not rare, but asks who's involved. And when Ward tells him that it's Jackie Raw, Hank tells him that he needs to avoid Jackie, as he's like the FBI's Doug Flutie. Now, I had no idea who this was referring to, so I had to do a little digging. Doug Flutie was an American football quarterback who had a standout career at Boston College, becoming a finalist for the Heisman Trophy in 1983, and winning the award the following year along with the Maxwell Award, the Davy O'Brien and Walter Camp Awards, as well as being named Player of the Year by United Press International and Sporting News. Despite his standout college career, Flutie wasn't picked up in the NFL until the 11th round of the 1985 draft, when he was the 285th pick overall, drafted to the Chicago Bears following the folding of the USFL's New Jersey Generals, where Flutie had played one season, and a team part owned by a certain United States president that I've mentioned previously on the podcast, and might go some way to explain that person's issues with the NFL today. Along with a stint at the New England Patriots in the NFL, Flutie also had spells at the BC Lions, Calgary Stampeders, and Toronto Argonauts in the CFL, before returning to play in the NFL for the Buffalo Bills and the San Diego Chargers, before retiring in 2005 following a second spell at the New England Patriots, playing five games that season at the age of 42. Hank says that it won't kill Ward to do Jackie a favour, and encourages him to do so, because if Jackie comes for him, he won't see it coming. Cut to another area of town where we see Frankie pull up to his home in a massive 4x4. Seriously, that thing was fucking enormous. He sits down after a hard day of robbery, but his daughter shouts for him from her room. He goes to see her and she tells him that she is scared because she woke up and he wasn't home. He tells her that he always comes home and she tells him that she saw Kanicki, which seems to be some sort of boogeyman that she's afraid of. That, or it's the panda that seems to be sat on the radiator by the window. That would have scared me if I'd woken up in the night just to see that thing staring back at me. He kisses her goodnight and gives her a cuddle to get her to sleep. His wife, Kathy, played by Amanda Clayton, comes down to make sure everything is alright, asking if she'd had a bad dream again, but mentions that Frankie's mum is on the phone. He asks what she wants, Kathy just saying, what do you think, as we cut to Frankie heading to the police station to bail out his brother Jimmy, played by Mark O'Brien. One of the cops here as well, I genuinely thought this was Donnie Wahlberg and that he'd seriously let himself go in the last couple of years since the Saw franchise ended and between New Kids on the Block tours. I was watching this with my wife and she had to look it up and turns out I wasn't far off. This is his brother Robert, the lesser known of the Wahlbergs, but he has had acting roles in films such as Mystic River, The Departed and The Equalizer. He's playing the part of Bernie and he explains that Jimmy threw a road flare into a car driven by, as he puts it, minority suspects. I mean, yeah, that will end you up in jail, I suppose. He jokes that for some reason they didn't press charges, and he asks how Frankie is doing. You get the feeling right away from when Jackie walks in that they go back some way. Jimmy has been sleeping it off on a bench in the station, handcuffed to the wall so that he can't go anywhere, and Bernie has to give him a swift couple of kicks to wake him up. Jimmy slurs an apology about wasting the police time and gives a Nazi salute, which is probably as good a moment as any to make a quick getaway. Bernie points them to the back exit and Frankie threatens to kick Jimmy's ass if he tells him that he loves him and tells him to get in the car. Cut to the courtroom as Jackie walks in with some coffees for a few people. See, he's a nice guy after all. And where Ward is talking with a jury. 
Court is adjourned and Ward starts to head out, but not before Jackie offers him a coffee and they start to head down a hallway. Jackie says that there has been a misunderstanding between the two of them, but Ward tells him that there isn't and that they both see each other for who they truly are. They talk about letting Clay go before Jackie asks Ward what he wants in the long term as we close out Act 2. I think there's been a misunderstanding between you and I. No, it's no misunderstanding at all. I think we both recognize one another for exactly who we are. What do you want, Ward? I want to put this case to bed. You give me the name of your supposed real shooter, I let Roach walk. Well, considering the devil completely spoiled my CI as an informant, let's just put that aside for the minute. I mean, what do you want? Long term, for you. Honestly? Yeah, honestly. I want to rip out the fucked up machinery in this bullshit city. I want to tear it all down. For good. Look, 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 look. Do you honestly think you're the first person to feel that way? I mean, you ever heard of Lincoln Steffens? Good men don't understand? I don't buy that. Yeah? You having a lot of luck with that yourself? Act 3 then, and Ward heads off to the police station to meet Detective Minogue, but he gets the cold shoulder from the officer on reception. He walks through the station and sees Minogue working at his desk and heads over. He mentions about being asked to sit down, seeing as he's the one prosecuting his gunman, but Minogue doesn't seem to share the sentiments and says Ward can stand. Again, there is this constant underlying racial division running throughout the episode, even from people who work for the city, and I'm sure that is something that will continue throughout the series. Ward pulls up a chair as noisily as possible and sits down, asking if Minogue is involved in the Charles Stewart case, and if not, then what does it matter? Minogue fires back with, because there's one thing you people don't understand, before quickly adding about how he is referring to civilians rather than the other you people. Minogue says that early on in a cop's career, they make a choice. You can decide to do the job the same way as others do, or you protect them while they're doing it, because someday the backup won't show. And he mentions about how sometimes an arsehole comes along recommending jail time, whereas Minogue would see it as just doing his job. Ward says that he still resents that the cops didn't get any jail time, and Minogue says that Ward has a donkey cock on him as a showing of respect. Sort of. Minogue then gets down to asking what Ward wants, Ward asking for a reason not to prosecute Clay. Minogue says that he shot a cop, but Ward mentions that there are a lot of people willing to go to bat for him. Minogue asks if Ward knows who Whitey Bulger is, and this was something that I did have a slight idea about who that was. James Joseph Bulger Jr., more commonly known as Whitey Bulger, was the leader of the Winter Hill Gang out of Somerville, Massachusetts, to the northwest of Boston. However, he was also an FBI informant from 1975, before finally being jailed in September 2014. The 2015 film Black Mass, starring Johnny Depp as Bulger and once again featuring Kevin Bacon, was based on his life story, and the character of Frank Costello in The Departed, played by Jack Nicholson, was loosely based on him also. On October 30th, 2018, while serving time at USP Hazleton in Preston County, West Virginia, Bulger passed away from blunt force trauma following a brutal attack by other inmates, the third homicide at the prison in a 40-day span. Ward mentions about Jackie being involved, as well as bringing up about how he's heard that there was another shooter, and that Minogue had a warrant for the wrong place. He asks why Jackie would lie, Minogue calling Jackie a classic Boston arsehole, and how he's from a different time, claiming that if you went to mass on Sundays you were considered legitimate, and that Jackie always gets away with it, which Ward sees as being the thing that's eating away at Minogue. Cut to Jackie driving around in what might be described as a slight state of intoxication listening to Tom Sawyer by Rush. Classic tune, that one, from their Moving Pictures album. Kevin Bacon as well trying to sing in the same key as Geedy Lee. I wouldn't if I were you, Kev. Many have tried and many have failed. He arrives at the station and heads in to see Bernie and starts asking him about Minogue. So Minogue's hatred for Jackie stems from past cases, it would seem, as Jackie puts it here that they don't seem to have actually met. Bernie describes Minogue as a scumbag as Jackie asks what Bernie has on Minogue, and offers seats for opening day, but Bernie wants something better than that. Could be for any number of sports that one, but as we seem to be in the middle of winter here, I'm guessing it'll be seats for basketball for the Boston Celtics. Can't imagine there's much being played down at Fenway Park this time of year. Cut to Jackie pulling up to a truck which is definitely not suspicious looking at all, parked in the middle of nowhere, and definitely not a surveillance truck. 
Jackie heads in where Minogue and Stevie are working, but he tells Stevie to buzz off so he and Minogue can talk. You really want to bust my balls in this fucking roach case, huh? Hey, the prick shot a cop. Oh, don't talk to me like a fucking idiot. You and I both know that you weren't supposed to be there. Blow out your ass. My warrant was in order. Now, you know, there is a nice way that I could do this, but I fucking don't like you, so let's just cut to it. How's your degenerate brother Gary doing? All you gotta do is say that you caught Roach flea in the scene, leave a little bit of room for reasonable doubt. I'm not fucking lying for you, you cocksucker. How long did he last in the seminary, Gary, before they washed him out? Huh? Doing what he did. Does your mother know? So Jackie holding that information over Minogue to get what he wants. I'm sure that's not the first time that's ever happened, and it most likely won't be the last either. We get a scene of Frankie working his day job stacking vegetables down the local supermarket, which probably goes some way to explaining why he's pulling heists on the side. Jimmy approaches him and says that he needs some money, and he's looking kind of skittish as he does so. You could look at it either as he's taken some drugs that morning and is feeling the effects, or he's just worked himself up so much about asking Frankie for help. He says that he needs to get out of there, and Frankie tells him that Jimmy won't be happy until Jimmy learns to take care of himself. So it's most likely that Jimmy's dealers are chasing him for money owed. Jimmy then says that the money is for treatment, which Frankie immediately calls him out on, as Jimmy changes his story and mentions about Jimmy's kids down in Florida. Frankie says that he can get him a job at the supermarket, but Jimmy wants into the other thing, but Frankie tells him that's not going to happen. He says that he knows that Jimmy can do the job, but he's worrying about Jimmy getting himself in trouble with his mouth. He asks Jimmy to take a look at his life, asking if he thinks that money changes anything, but Jimmy storms out with tears in his eyes, saying that it makes things easier. Some good development in this scene for both characters, as we see the more caring side to Frankie, and despite Jimmy's limited screen time so far, his demons and future motivations have been quickly established. We go to another courthouse as Jackie sits in on Clay's trial, and we see Ward questioning Minogue on the witness stand. He asks him about what the drug control unit managed to find at the premises, Minogue explaining that they found a 22 caliber handgun with bullets that match those from the shooting, along with traces of heroin. Ward asks him about finding Clay there, to which Minogue says that he was apprehended near the scene. Ward points out that this differs from Minogue's report, where he says that Clay was arrested inside the premises, but Minogue says that the premises is referring to the building as a whole, so he's changing his story following his meeting with Jackie. Ward looks to the back of the court and sees Jackie and shoots him a look that screams, you motherfucker. Ward tries to bring things back to the report, but he and Minogue are talking over each other, and the judge tells Ward that he's heard about the report, and it's time to move on. Cut to the judge's chambers where he is talking with Ward. He asks Ward what the hell he just let happen, and as Ward tries to explain, the judge tells him that he doesn't want any excuses. This judge's chamber reminded me a lot of Leo's office, if only the desk was situated out of the corner. There does seem to be one random white pipe spoiling the aesthetic, though. The judge tells Ward that with Clay being a federal informant, that he should have let the kid walk when asked. Ward looks surprised, and the judge leaves him with a Lincoln Stephens quote to think over. Jesus replied that he could only save sinners, not the righteous. Lincoln Stephens was an American investigative journalist known for his Tweed Days in St. Louis series of articles, which appeared in McClure's magazine in the early 20th century, later published as the book The Shame of the Cities, in which he investigated corruption in municipal government. Ward heads home despondent, and he ends up arguing with Siobhan, saying that she even said that this was going to happen, and that he can't win. She asks, why can't you just do what they ask? And he angrily tells her, because I'm not their fucking boy. I've talked previously about why boy is such a horrific term in the black community, so I won't revisit that here, but it does go a long way to show Ward's view of himself in the eyes of others. The subject of the job at the law firm comes up again, and Ward says that he likes what his job should be, but Siobhan tells him that that's not the way things are. They argue some more, and he says that he isn't going to the dinner that was mentioned before. We get a quick scene of Jimmy down at a bar flirting with a girl who he then ends up fucking in the toilet stall, before they're interrupted and he ends up fighting with a number of other people in the bar. He does manage to have one more shot before being dragged off though. We see the bar again next morning and there's a really good establishing shot of a windy snowy Boston, and there have been some others throughout the episode. On the whole, Boston tends to have humid summers and cold winters, with coastal areas averaging freezing, while further inland, it's not uncommon for temperatures to drop to around minus 17 degrees Celsius, or 1.4 degrees Fahrenheit for those in the US, 
Whichever way you look at it, Boston can get bloody cold. Frankie comes to collect Jimmy, who's been locked up in the bar pantry and he's tucking into a jar of pickles, which I'm not convinced is a good hangover cure. Frankie drives Jimmy back to his place, but has some strong words for him. What the fuck is wrong with you? Oh, fuck. I should just get a sign on the ceiling above my bed. You did good today because you took your fucking meds. Fucking night. What's gonna have to happen to you before you learn, huh? Oh, fuck. Are you just gonna let us all in for the ride so you figure it out? Just let Ma watch you kill yourself by inches. Yo, don't give me that shit, okay? Shut the fuck up! Shut the fuck up and listen to me! This shit that you pull, it don't just affect you anymore. We're not 18 years old throwing shit at the TPF or the roots of the Bunk Hill projects. I got kids. Three of them! One who cried himself to sleep the other fucking night because her father didn't come home. He's at the station house picking up her scump at fucking uncle. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Don't. Don't. No, I don't want to fucking hear it. Genuinely. No, genuinely. I'm sorry. Just on. Fuck your head. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Frankie tells Jimmy that this is the best it's ever going to be for him as he waves his kids off on the school bus. The scene ends with Frankie telling Jimmy... You know I love you, you prick. And I started to feel for Frankie a little bit here. We saw earlier during the heist how he will do whatever it takes in order to succeed, but it's why he's doing these jobs that became clear more and more as the episode goes on. He mentioned there to Jimmy about what they used to do as kids living in the housing projects, and while he isn't living there anymore, he's not exactly in the best neighbourhood. He's working a low-income job and supporting a family doing so, all the while having to look out for his brother who hasn't grown up. It's got to be frustrating for Frankie. He didn't do that bank truck heist just for the hell of it, he's doing it in order to survive. We see Kathy working her job at a beauty salon, and there's a couple of customers talking about the drivers from the truck heist. So that is starting to make the news, and then her daughter walks in with a bloody face after getting into a fight at school, Johnny O'Malley having hit her in the face with a hockey stick. Kathy takes her to a back room and cleans her up, and tells her cry if you want to, but then you get even and that she has Kathy's permission to go and break Johnny O'Malley's dick. This leads nicely into Jimmy teaching the other kids about how to guard their faces boxing style. Again, it does a good job of showing the tough side to living in a city like Boston. Kathy heads upstairs where Frankie is looking over some books, but he's saying that they didn't get enough from the heist, and that maybe they got around $1,500 each. And this is the first we're seeing of Kathy being aware of Frankie's other ventures. I was quite surprised as it seemed to come out of the blue. Frankie says that Jimmy needs to see his kids, but she tells him that Frankie has his own kids to worry about, mentioning about their daughter's face. Frankie takes a moment to contemplate things, before the scene ends with he and Kathy having a fool around. Back at the court, Ward is going over some files when two other officers throw him a file about the truck heist. Ward reckons that with three guys missing, presumed dead, that's a murder one case, but he's told that it'll go up to the feds as it's up in Revere, which is about seven miles outside of downtown Boston meaning that it will fall under a different jurisdiction and that no one wants to get involved in cross-investigation because they know that witnesses will be uncooperative. This scene also gives us the first mention that Ward is from Brooklyn as opposed to Boston, highlighting him as being an outsider to the way things are done in the city. There's a quick scene of Frankie down at a late-night store playing a lottery scratch card with a million-dollar reward. The odds on winning that are so small I don't know why he's even bothering. He sees another cash truck and seems to be formulating another plan in his head. Ward heads to what looks like a hotel bar, where he sees Jackie telling a story about an old bust. That but the fourth was Donato. Donato and Jula. And finally, Salvi says, fuck it, let's just go knock on the prick's door. We drive up to his house, Prince Street, knock on the door. Nice old Italian lady lets us in. And I remember staring at him and thinking this motherfucker was gonna fuck me up and he sees this and he says to me what the fuck are you thinking about and i say irony abounds irony abounds that's a good line what's that from arthur bremer he shot wallace now you see this guy here this is the course he wore this is the next mayor of boston That'll be the day. (laughs) 
So Arthur Bremer, he's an interesting person to read about. The shooting that Ward mentions in the Irony Abounds line from Jackie occurred on May 15th, 1972 in Laurel, Maryland, in which Bremer shot George Wallace, the governor of Alabama and Democratic presidential candidate, as well as three bystanders. George Wallace wasn't Bremer's only foray into attempted assassination that year. Bremer's first target was then-President Richard Nixon, who I mentioned earlier on. In his diary, Bremer wrote, it is my personal plan to assassinate by pistol either Richard Nixon or George Wallace. I intend to shoot one or the other while he attends a campaign rally for the Wisconsin primary. The attempted assassination left Wallace permanently paralysed from the waist down, and Bremer was sentenced to 63 years, reduced to 53 years on appeal. In 2007, having served 35 years of his sentence, Arthur Bremer was paroled from MCI Hagerstown, located approximately 78 miles outside of Baltimore, Maryland, and currently holds a two-star review on Google Maps. Bremer's actions, as well as the contents of his diary, have been referenced in popular culture, and were a strong influence for the character of Travis Bickle in the movie Taxi Driver, a movie which itself inspired John Hinckley Jr. to attempt to assassinate President Reagan on March 30th, 1981. The George Wallace attempted assassination, as well as Bremer's diary contents, were also referenced in Peter Gabriel's song Family Snapshot, 1994's Forrest Gump, as well as the 2018 animated documentary, A Penny For Your Thoughts. Jackie asks Ward what he wants, and Ward says that maybe they got off on the left foot, which I'm pretty certain isn't how that saying goes. He tells Jackie about the heist case and how he wants to work the case together, saying fuck his boss and anyone else who gets in his way. Frankie and Jimmy meet up with the other goons from the heist, and there's a good moment where Frankie has to tell Jimmy to stop bouncing a tennis ball. It just reaffirms Jimmy's lack of focus and how much of a kid he can be. He tells Jimmy that this is the one time he's going to do this, there will be no next time, and to use the money to get straight. The other goons don't seem too keen on the idea due to Jimmy's involvement and nearly come to blows, but there's a lot of them in a small space, so it was never really going to happen. Frankie tells them he's doing the job, and that he'd love for them to join him as he tells Jimmy to get in the car. Back at the hotel, Jackie tells Ward it's not about how far you're willing to go, but it's about how much shit you're willing to eat and they proceed to talk the case over and that they can use Ward's connections with the district attorney to scare witnesses with a grand jury. They talk about finding a cold case and using that to offer immunity for anyone that talks about it, only to then hit them with questions about this new robbery when it goes before the jury. Jackie does admit that it's a risky move, but he does say that Ward will most likely get the credit due to the circumstances surrounding it. It's actually pretty clever police work from Jackie, while he's been set up as a bit of a scumbag so far, it's hard to deny that he isn't good at his job in a certain way, and he certainly has a charisma to him. Whether he's ethical or not is a different matter, but you can't deny that he doesn't get results. Back at the bar, Frankie and Jimmy are sat at a table, and there's another good example of the opposites between them. Jimmy is sat all fidgety, while Frankie is calm and stoic. The other goons enter the bar, and they're in for the job. Back at the hotel again, and Jackie asks Ward what changed his mind about him, and Ward recounts about his father knowing Martin Luther King, and that his father was there when King was shot. He also mentions about how his dad would beat the shit out of him, and says that his dad caught him with his thumb one night, and pulls out a lens from his left eye, which Ward has permanent damage in. Jackie looks across between surprised and grossed out, as Ward tells him, You're right, only the bad understand, as Jackie repeats the irony abounds line from earlier, and the two toast a whiskey. Boston's more than a feeling plays over the crew knocking off another cash truck, and we see Jackie waiting outside a building waiting for someone. It takes a while, but we get the reveal of Jimmy being the person that he's waiting for. Jimmy tells Jackie, I'm going to be a lot more valuable to you now, and says that he knows where the bodies from the first heist are buried, as Jackie shoots a wicked smile, and we cut to the credits. So I gotta ask you, what changed your mind? About you? Beyond necessity. You'd said something. Reminded me when I was a kid. My father, he worked for the SCLC. He knew King. He was in Memphis when King was shot. When I was a kid, he'd come home, getting his head kicked in by the bull cars of the world. And he beat the living shit out of us. He, uh... He 
call me with a thumb one night. You're right. Only the bad understand. Irony abounds. So there we go, Series 1, Episode 1 of City on a Hill, The Night Flynn Sent the Cops on the Ice. I really enjoyed this for the most part, even if it wasn't anything particularly groundbreaking. Jackie is set up as somewhat of an outlaw from the off, matched up with the idealistic Ward. It's a formula we've come to know very well, but it was well acted and well written in that we got to know everybody's reasons and motivations. I love the reveal of Jimmy being another of Jackie's informants at the end, I honestly didn't see that coming at all, and it did its job in making me want to watch more. I have seen the next episode already, which features an appearance from Lee Tergerson, and I've read there are a number of other appearances from Oz alumni throughout the rest of the series. I'm looking forward to watching the rest of the show, which, if you're in the UK, all episodes are now available on demand on Sky TV, and if you're listening in the US, I'm assuming that Showtime has some sort of on-demand service through which it is available. The show has been renewed for a second series, which will most likely air in 2020, so it's obviously done well enough for the network to stick with it for at least another year. Looking at the viewing ratings for it, they seem to have been respectable, averaging around half a million viewers per episode, not accounting for DVR and on-demand and all that kind of stuff that's so important nowadays. I'm not going to do my usual episode MVP and all that stuff as this is a bonus episode to the main show, but I would recommend watching this if you get the chance. Like I said, nothing that reinvents the wheel, but it's a solid hour of drama. I'd give it a 7 out of 10. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can head on over to iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Overcast, Castbox, or wherever you get your podcast from. The entire Series 1 and Series 2 are available there, as are the two previous Outside Oz bonus episodes. Help the show out by leaving a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the show, and if you want to get in touch with the show with any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can do so by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com, and you can follow the show on social media on both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at insideozpodcast. Head on over to the Oz subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash ozshow. I've started posting there about certain topics, and you'll also find all the links to where you can find the podcast. I'm continuing to work away on series three of the podcast, but I will be back with you around Christmas time for Outside Oz number four. I'm not going to reveal what that is covering just yet. That's going to be my Christmas gift to you. But until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review podcast. Catch you later, everyone.